All right, the penultimate talk. So let me bow out and turn the stage over to John. Hmm. No pressure there. <laughs> um, so a Zen master was pouring tea for a student. And he said to him, you are like this cup. You are full of ideas about Buddha's way. You come and ask for teaching. But your cup is full. I can't put anything in. Because before I can teach you, you have to empty your cup. At this point, Suzuki Roshi is telling us some ways to do that. Um, the lines for this quote, uh, I mean, for this chapter are, Hearing the words, understand the meaning. Don't set up standards of your own. If you don't understand the way right before you, how will you know the path as you walk? Um, he starts with the translation and I'm only going to talk about the translation of the first word. Uh, interestingly enough, the translation is words, but the word in Japanese is koto. And he says that this includes not just words, but everything, words, things, and ideas that we see and hear. So that all of these things were being asked to see beyond not just to stick to the words. And in fact, when I told Dean that I wanted to work on this chapter, his comment was, ah, the Teflon chapter. Um, and so it is. If, if I had to summarize this chapter in three words, it'd be just don't stick. Um, we must understand the words, I, I'm sorry, we must understand the source and not stick to the concepts, to the cliche. The source, which we can't understand intellectually is beyond words and concepts. He then quotes one of my favorite Buddhist quotes, which is, my words are a finger pointing at the moon. Don't confuse my finger with the moon. In Sakito's time, each master had his own way of describing the Dharma. Many of those we know from koans, things like, um, you know, uh, nine pounds of flax or uh, a staff, a punch, a shout. Each master had his own way. Unfortunately, the students stuck to the words. They wanted to know which was the true way. And as Suzuki Roshi tells us, just asking that question is wrong. Um, Sakito is saying here, if you receive the words, you should understand the source of the teaching that is transmitted from the Buddha and is beyond each teacher's own way of expressing or suggesting the truth. Um, he then goes to the next line, which is don't set up standards of your own. Don't establish rules for yourself. Don't think this is right and this is wrong. The development of many schools over time, each understanding Buddhist teaching in their own way, and then sticking to that understanding 
uh, as the correct one was what led to the whole idea of an individual school being right. Sakito only talks about the Northern and Southern patriarchs, but there were all sorts of schools at that time. Um, and each of them had their own way of teaching. Um, I went back to the image and actually so does Suzuki. And he talks about three different teachers pointing at the moon. Obviously three different fingers, but only one moon. Um, as I thought about that some more, this image sort of blew up for me in a couple of different ways. First of all, I thought about all of the Buddhist teachings. So now we have, I, I just thought about this image. Now we have the Buddha, Ananda, Mahakashyapa, Nagarjuna, go down the list, go down the list, Dongshan, um, you know, and down to the present day, down to Dean, down to Mike. All of these within are pointing, are different messages, all pointing at a single entity, which is really Shunyata, which he refers to as the source of the teaching. Um, it made me also think about how sometimes our language may get in the way of our understanding. We have all these different names for this. Buddha, Shunyata, big mind, original mind, don't know mind, the source, the generative. Add any, of, any more of them that you want. And I realized that oftentimes when I'm studying these things, I get into this narrow tunnel of whatever they're talking about. Instead of understanding that on a different level. I mean, I knew all of these things here, but as I read this, I came to understand in, in, in a different way, these are all the same thing. Every time I sit down with one of these texts, we're still looking at the same thing. In some ways, traditional religions, I think, have it easier in the sense that they have one or two names for whatever they, there's God or Allah or you name it. And that's the ultimate. And as I was thinking about that, what I came to realize again about this image of fingers pointing at the moon, much as Dean has helped us to understand as he brings in all sorts of other sources, religious and not, that there are millions of fingers pointing at the moon, not just our Buddhist ones. When I go back and look at things like religions, some of the most basic religions of, uh, of primitive peoples. And they have, they talk about everything having a spirit. The spirit of a tree, a rock, a person, a mountain. And isn't that a different way of, now they look at that as separate. We look at that as one and we call it shunyata. There was, there was a great deal of internal things that happened for me that I wish that I could transmit to you <laughs> from this simple image of a finger pointing at the moon and then more and more and more fingers pointing at the moon and looking at and understanding from my standpoint, also there's a great deal of information that we as human beings naturally look beyond ourselves to something larger than ourselves, to something beyond ourselves. For us, that's shunyata, that's the source. Um, oops, sorry, wrong page. Um, 
he went back. So going back to this idea of don't stick to your own understanding of things. Rules are important, but don't stick to them or force them on others. Rules are not the point. The teaching that the rules catch is the point. By observing the rules, you will naturally understand the teaching. And then he goes on to talk about Tassahara. Um, the other thing that, that came out of my looking at fingers pointing at the moon was I decided I wanted to know some more about fingers, uh, our fingers. And, and starting with Coben and going to the other teachers since then to, and understanding looking at Mike and Doug and Cliff and Dean, where, what, is, what is the essence of where we come from and, and what is our teaching? Um, and then a funny thing happened, actually. Uh, it's too bad that uh, Julia is not on right now. I, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to sit with a group down in New Orleans, the Zen group down there, whenever I go on a medical retreat, I look for the opportunity to sit with whatever group is in that city. And if they're close enough, I'll, I'll sit with them one of the nights that I'm down there. And while I was down there, um, I went to the Zen center in, in New Orleans and was talking to the temple monk as she referred to herself. Um, and she introduced me to a man who had started their group by the name, and I'm probably going to slaughter this, so uh, bear with me, but I believe it's Ray Ryu Philippe Coupe. And the book was, oh, you can't, I'm sorry, there's too much. It's In the Belly of the Dragon the book that Julie was talking about yesterday. As I read that book, I found out that he had been trained by um, uh, Kodo Sawaki, which took me back to a, the other book that I had read not too long ago, The Zen Teachings of Homeless Kodo. I would recommend both of these books to you. But the way that they tie into our lineage is, I found out that, that Coben, though Kodo Sawaki was not one of his primary teachers, was in fact someone that he had spent a good deal of time with and had used as a teacher as well. Kodo Sawaki was a bit of a rebel. He rebelled against the temple system in Japan. And for that reason, he never, until I guess very late in life, he became associated with a single temple. Until then, he traveled around and he talked to any place and to anyone. I have always, I, the, the third book that I'm going to show you is this one. And, and I think, so. I know many of you have read it, but this is, the Brown book called Remembering Coben, and it's, it's people's various remembrances of Coben Chino. Um, when I looked at Coben, he seemed so different from Suzuki. I looked at Suzuki Roshi and I thought, Suzuki was sort of this gentleman farmer. He settled in San Francisco and he built a Zen center, uh, city center and, and Green Gulch Farm and Tassahara. Well, he invited Coben over to Tassahara and he invited him to Tassahara to teach the monks the forms, the, the Zen forms that they didn't know. But Coben then sort of, in my view, becomes Johnny Appleseed. He goes to Jokoji and he starts to Jokoji. He started several other Zen centers down the coast of California. He went to um, 
New, uh, to New Mexico and started Hokoji in um, Taos, another place that I sat. And, and I, I, I couldn't understand why these guys, I, I, I was curious as to why these guys were so different. Uh, what I believe that to be is the influence of Kodo Sawaki, who wasn't so much about building these big temples. He was about getting people connected to Zen, getting people started. And then he would come back. And, and it wasn't like he started these and, and went off. He came back and he supported all of these over time. But it was an interesting difference. And it helped me to understand some things about the way our lineage works. Um, sorry, that's a diversion, but going back to the text. By observing the rules, you will naturally understand the teaching. To see the actual moon through Tassahara rules is the way to practice at Tassahara. Rules are a skillful means. Simply another picture, uh, I'm sorry, simply another finger pointing at the moon. And, and then he goes on to talk about and uses the example of a fish. He says, studying Zen is like a fish picking up its food. Um, it's just, it just swims around and if something good comes around, snap, it's got it. And that's how we should be. Um, it certainly was my early experience of reading. I just kind of looked for whatever appealed to me and I'd grab this and grab that and I'd read and I'd, and it's a little more organized now, but I still do that. But it's not just about reading. He's talking about practice. As we were supposed to just swim around in the Dharma. And as good things come along, as things come along, to react, to take them in if they're, or to act. He then says, as long as you're following the rules, you have something, whether you realize it or not. Even if you don't feel you have anything or study anything, you are actually studying. He then again says, to understand does, uh, does not mean to understand something with your head. Um, it reminded me of what it was like to go through therapy. I sat in therapy for three and a half years, twice a week, and at the end of therapy, I was happier. I could feel some major things had shifted inside of me. But if you asked me to explain it to you, there was nothing. The major things that I took from therapy, I could not explain to you. I can now. I can explain a lot of it now, 40 years later, as I learned it more from as I learned to put it into words, more from living life than anything else. But the changes that happen from the interpersonal therapy that I, with psychodynamic therapy were not things that I could say. Oftentimes the changes that I feel that, that come from this are the same. I'll see something, I'll see my reaction to something. I'll see a thought come to mind and, and I understand that something's changed inside. Sometimes I'll feel like something's changed inside without being able to verbalize what that is. That it's just changes that happen as you practice. Um, he then says our innate nature has its own function before you say good or bad. Um, so, and describes good and bad as 
from a Zen perspective, something you should do is good, something you shouldn't do is bad. But that we should function out of our innate nature, which is beyond good and bad, it has its own function before you say good and bad. Um, again, coming back to the same message, he says, don't make rules for yourself. Don't try and understand with your head. He then says that Sakito is standing behind you with a big stick. All you have to do is say yes. <laughs> don't talk about it. The source is not something you can understand through words, but something you have when you do things naturally and intuitively without saying good or bad. It is good to think about things, but don't stick to the words or the rules too much. And then he goes on to say, this is a very delicate point. And he comes to balance this idea of not sticking with, in fact, um, being strict with yourself about the rules. Um, and he says, <laughs> this is where he comes to the next uh, lines, which are, if you don't understand the way right before you, how will you know the path as you walk it? The only way that we can understand is to use our five senses and simultaneously to understand the source of the teaching. Um, as we keep coming back to, the five senses are what we have. The intriguing thing to me is, and too, as I read, probably as I reflected on some of my psychodynamic teaching is, from psychodynamic theory, you are born into this world, seeing the entire world as part of you, not differentiating anything. And thanks to some of the things we've talked about, I realized that not only do we train ourselves to have a self, we have to train ourselves to have a self in order to function in this world. If we can't recognize the difference between self and other, uh, you know, as, as Shugen Sensei used to say, the, the saber-toothed tiger is going to eat you and you will be one as his lunch. So you need to know that he's different from you. But this is how we can understand, it, it, it is those tools that we have to understand the source. The most important thing is not the rules, but finding the true source of the teaching with your eyes and ears, wherever you are. To have some direct experience of everyday life without thinking this is the way or that is the way. Buddha is something beyond our understanding. Buddha could be anything. And he goes on then to talk about the importance of the words to and also. The perfect Zen statement, uh, I'm sorry, using uh, the words to and also, he uses the example of the mountain is Buddha too. You are Buddha also as everything as Buddha. And so it's important for us as we say these things to communicate to people that everything is, that not just one thing is Buddha, but everything is Buddha. The perfect Zen statement he says is, it isn't always so. If you are a Tassahara, this is our rule, but it isn't always so. You must be ready to accept some other ways as well as your own. To have a strict, strong practice of your own, but being able to accept another's way too can be very difficult. Unless you are ready to accept another's way, you cannot be strict with your own practice. 
to be yourself is to be ready to accept someone else's opinion. Each moment, you should know intuitively what to do. But this does not mean you should reject the opinions of others. He then talked about his own master who always used to, he said he had very strong opinions, but he always said, in my opinion, that they were always, that his opinions were always preceded by that statement. Um, he then, uh, which, I'm sorry, which leaves open the idea that you can change. It is an opinion. Opinions are changeable, hopefully. <laughs> he ends the chapter with several interesting things. Don't stick to words, don't make your own rules and force rules on others. The last sentence, however, I think is the punchline to the whole chapter. It's not possible to force rules on others anyway because each person has his own way and should have his own way. So even if you want to force your rules on others, you can't do it anyhow. Um, it sort of made me laugh that he left that for the last thing that he says in the chapter. Um, with that, I'm open to any thoughts you have. Thank you. I'd like to uh, thank you for your for your talk, John. Um, oh, the first um, the first piece really resonated with me when you were talking about how emptiness is our basic nature and how the finger pointing to the moon that, you know, there's so many figure, fingers and they're all pointing to, uh, to, to uh, a universal experience uh, of emptiness or shunyata, nirvana, whatever. And that was, uh, you know, it's just a, a great realization to, to have, I believe, you know, to see how all of these things are, are unified um, and that there's so many different paths and then it was really, um, I appreciated you going into, you know, what I think for, for all of us who practice is sort of a, a tightrope or a, uh, a middle way, uh, which is finding our, our own practice within the framework of uh, whatever other practices that we're, that we're taking on. And uh, whether that's Zen practice or some other practice and uh, oftentimes sort of, you know, melding those practices together um, as, as some people so successfully do, like a Thomas Merton or, uh, you know, Wayne LeBeau. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. You know, that, that certainly has been on my mind quite a lot, um, you know, uh, finding our own practice within um, the, the broader framework and how it all relates back to um, uh, being able to, to share that experience of, of, of emptiness and to find that wherever we go and in whatever we do. So thank you, John, I appreciate the talk.
Thank you for the little chip on mute, first of all, I, because I forget it a lot. Um, thank you, John, that was helpful. When I read this um, chapter, this talk earlier, um, I was still a little bit um, having a little confusion with it and your talk really helped. So I, and I am very happy that you shared the books, especially, um, I didn't know about that book on Coben and I'm happy oh. looking forward to reading it. Um, I, I, um, I haven't been around today because we ended up having to take our dog to the vet this morning. Oh. And uh, I talked about it on Thursday night that um, she's not doing so well. And so we are going to put her down. And um, it, it'll, it's, it'll be okay, but it, it is a little unsettling. But um, the one thing that from what you said, it helped me realize even more though, that when they say don't stick so much to the rules, I think, and I wonder what you think about this, that it, you, it is, it's really about being in the moment. That yeah. if, if, am I right if I'm going down that road? I, I think that's what it is. And- That's, uh, that's how I read it, certainly. Uh, I think that's all I, um, it's not, just words and concepts, but it's the source and, and that they enter the everyday with the, yes. Okay, yeah. thank you. I will say just so people do know this, this, the, the Brown book, Remembering Coben are remembrances from all of the, not all of the people, but many of the people who knew him and worked with him for many years. So it is, it, it's really various remembrances of him from, by all sorts of people. Um, it's really very fun to read. It's very, uh, it's very helpful because I, I really felt like I had a much better sense of the man after reading that book. I appreciate you um, talking about him being a renegade because um, I had a friend who was ordained by him and um, mm. some, sometimes some of the Zen people weren't real, you know, they thought, yeah, he's a renegade. Um, should this guy been ordained? I mean, I heard things like that. But then I had the opportunity um, by a fluke, I was going to attend a retreat, a Sashin led by uh, Coben and he died. So one of his um, students led it up in Vermont and um, it was really enlightening about his life. So I look forward to reading that book. Thank you. Yeah. You're muted, Mark. Okay, sorry, oh. I thought I unmuted myself. 
We're just saying thanks again, John, and kind of picking up on what Brannigan said. Um, when things come up, whether you have to take your dog to the vet or um, and kind of meshing that with what Sakito talked about, or I mean, Suzuki talked about strictness with your mm -hmm. practice to have a very strict um, practice. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and strictness. Um, Cause I, I, uh, I don't know, I guess, you know, when, when perhaps we're not being as strict, whether it's um, our own stubbornness or laziness or something comes up like this morning, I was planning on sitting um, and my handyman came over and he needed help with stuff. And it, you know, what I, what I was hoping was gonna be, you know, a 10 minute turned into over an hour, you know, and I just, so I give myself a little bit more leeway with that kind of a situation because as far as being strict, because it was a little bit out of my control. I just, you know, had to be there. Um, but, you know, when I'm, when I'm just feeling lazy or, um, tired, uh, and I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm not as strict with my practice as I really think I should be. Um, and I, I have to admit one of the Zazen periods, I read one of the chapters instead of doing Zazen and I beat myself up over it. <laughs> <laughs> but I like wanted to read the chapter so that I, I like to read the chapter before hearing the Dharma talk. Um, so it's a catch 22, you know, I mean, in a perfect world, I would have read every chapter before the Dharma talk and I would have read the whole book before the Sashin and then reread the chapters before, right before each Dharma talk. So I have my strict concept in my head of how I should, my practice should all line up and it just goes to hell every, all the time. And it goes to hell more at home by myself than it does when we're all together, whether it's, you know, in, in Cleveland or when we went, you know, a group of us would go to um, California, you know, to Jokoji. I, so I don't know, I just feel like sometimes not only can I, I'm not strict, but sometimes I'm just like, a complete loser when it comes to my everything Zazen related. <laughs> well, the first thing I would say is don't stick to your strictness. Okay, that's easy enough. <laughs> I, I really, I, I see this, you know, each of us I see it at least, and I guess that's the way I need to talk about it. I see it as, you know, I stick, sticking to the rules in this case means sticking to the basic concepts of what you believe and what you find helpful. And sometimes sitting may not be helpful. If, you're, if it's the wrong time or the wrong place, you may be better off to read that hour. But the important thing is being honest with yourself. And, and that's knowing the difference probably between being, being lazy and just knowing this isn't going to work. I mean, plenty of times, I, 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 we all, I, I know we all have times when we think, oh, I don't want to sit. And there, there are certainly plenty of those days for me, but I sit. And I think that's where the strictness comes in. 
And, and there are other days where something has come up. I, I mean, where I get up, I sit first thing in the morning. It's what I do every day. Um, but occasionally something comes up first thing in the morning, I can't. Um, or I, not that I can't, but I choose not to because I see something as more important in a different way. It may be attending to a need of my wife or, or something of that nature. Uh, or something that I have to do professionally or whatever. Um, but outside of those, it, it's being able to not stick so hard to the rules that you don't see what's important. That's, that's how I would say it. I, and that's how I would see it. Um, I'd be open to anybody else's thoughts about the same thing. I mean, it's, it is, and that's what he says. This is very delicate, being strict with your own practice and at the same time being open to other people's practice. But, and I also see it as his, as his saying, be strict with your own practice, but don't make rules for yourself. And how do you do that? I, <laughs> that's a real delicate balancing act. And I think that's what he's saying to us here. I think he is, the, the, the one part I took out of this is follow the rules, do what they say because they are made to help you see the source. But then in the next breath he says, but, the, but you know, don't be too rigid with those rules. Because if you get too rigid, you'll lose the source too. That's how I read it. That's how I heard it. Um, so I, I don't know if that, I don't know if that's helpful or not. But yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, so it, I, I guess strictness and discipline would go to are similar. Mm. Strictness sounds strictness sounds a little harsher to me than than I, I, yeah to to me and I think this is different depending on who's who's defining the word strictness is is more rigidity discipline means you're doing what you're supposed to do but you haven't disengaged your brain and just following the rule uh, I might. Uh, step in here for a second, Please. but uh, it was at Tassahara, it's follow the rules because the, the rules give you freedom. I don't know if that makes sense at all, because mm -hmm. if you're following the rules, then it sort of, you're, I, I guess you have more self-awareness for what you're doing. And so then it frees up, it seems to free up lots more energy to uh, practice. I don't know if that makes any sense, but so it's not, it's just, it's a, it's like a container that makes practice easier. Cause it's sort of like, if you have, like we were talking uh, yesterday, you know, if you have these guideposts that, you know, then you're always headed in a certain direction and you may veer in and out of that, but it always brings you back to your center again. I, I think that's a good addition um, because like, I, like, like John, I sit every morning. Well, if every morning I made a decision whether I was gonna sit or not, then, then that, would be, that would be crazy because every, every, I'd be sitting and I'd be sitting there going, well, should I be sitting or should I not be sitting? And so, and, and so that's what rules are, are serve us. So we're not, we're not the rule. The rules aren't our master. We, those are their tools that we use. And, 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 and that's, um, I like what Jeffrey said, because by setting a rule and a schedule that of course I don't follow it roughshod over the actual circumstances that arise, of course not, but, but, then it's there 
But if I'm like deciding, it's like if you're married, it's like you, you can't like be in indecisive whether you want a relationship with this person every 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 day and every minute. You gotta go, no, okay, we're in relationship, that's established, and now something can actually take place within that. But if we're always in limbo as to whether we're having a relationship or not, then nothing can actually, you can't actually um, um, process and you can't actually engage and, and, and interact because you're still on the fence of whether you need. So yeah, so I, I really, that's, that's very true. Um, we, you know, us Americans, we, we, we're very, we like the idea of a renegade. We like the idea of, ah, da, da, you know, but there's one, there's one, there's, there's a difference between um, immobile and um, frozen and, um, um, and stability. Stability is a positive thing. If there's not stability, then nothing can happen. If, 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 if my house, you know, is not complete and the walls aren't quite up and if the, and the, and the foundation is, you know, I can't really operate. So to me, the house is like the rules, the structure. And within that structure, then I can attend to whatever. But if I'm always deciding on the destruction, well, I don't know. Do I want this structure? Do I want I don't want this structure? Well, then I can never actually um, um, get to my life. Get get to get to what's. So anyway, I talk too much. Well, it it also reminded me of a book that I heard about. I have not read it, and I can't even tell you the name of it at this point. Um, but it was written by a French Cartesian monk who lived a, in a silent community. And he talked about, interestingly enough, the phrase he used was the tyranny of the bells because the bells told them where they had to be. And yet, what, when he described it, he described the opposite. He, saw, he described that the bells made him perfectly free. He didn't have to look at a watch. He didn't have to think about where he was going to be. He knew what he had to do at each point in the day, and he could be focused on that. And when the bell rang, he moved to the next thing. And that this was a helpful thing to him. Um, I'm not sure how long it'd be helpful to me, but uh, he liked it. And, and it was... Um, it allowed him to, to just kind of stay single-minded and focused. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know, to kind of piggyback on this, the, 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 the term firm yet gentle kind of comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's generally often the instruction um, in meditation, you know, uh, with your object of concentration is, is a, a firm yet gentle um, gaze or approach or whatever. And I think that's, that's kind of, that was kind of the thing that came to mind with, with this whole discussion um, of the middle way. Oh, yeah. Here. And um you know, I kind of like Joe, like I sit every morning, it's, it's actually on my Google calendar, <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's there every single day. It's, it's not something that I just wake up and decide to do. It's just what I do, you know, and um, likewise with many other things during the day um, that don't have anything to do with practice, you know, it's just, you know, silly things like, you know, doing the dishes at the end of the day, like, you know, some might say that I'm anal, but it really, it keeps me on track. And, and like those bells, it really, you know, kind of alleviates a lot of uh, anxiety around, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Just uh, not really knowing what to do at, the, at that particular moment. Thank you.
But John, I, I thought you did a great job with the um, with that whole thing. The don't stick to rules, and yet the importance of rules. I, I thought it was my favorite part of your talk. I thought you real there's something the way you said that, and how like the marriage of intuition and rules. You can't. It's kind of a paradoxical relationship, but but there it is. Mm. Yeah, it's an error. It is an interesting paradox. Would you would you say that the precepts are the rules are the equivalent precepts and rules or no, don't worry about it. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, precepts are precepts. I, I Part of what I've always liked is the fact that they're called precepts, not commandments, not rules, precepts. And a precept is a bit different than a rule, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and... and really, I look at the precepts in the same way. And that is, they're, they're again, skillful means. There are fingers pointing at the moon, if you will. Do, if you follow these things, you will, it will lead you in the right direction. I just looked up in the, in the new Oxford American Dictionary. Uh, it says precept is a general rule intended to regulate behavior or thought. And the second definition is a writ, W-R-I-T, or warrant. Well, I, I don't know the second one, but all right, if you're going to get the dictionary on me, I don't <laughs> 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 the the red is what gets issued when you break the precept. <laughs> then they come looking for you. <laughs> I think the main word there is general. It's a, it's a general, general rule. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would also add to that that actually precepts uh, could be taken as rules. Some people do take them as rules. But within our tradition, they have the flexibility kind of built in that that's, that's also at the heart of the precept for that very reason. So it doesn't become a rule. But externally, you look at the precepts and they could certainly function as rules. Don't do this, 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 this. So could you take the precepts and, and live them as rules? Sure. But that's not our way. So the precepts are in that sense are really a great example of what Suzuki's talking about in this chapter is how we live the precepts. So that there is an element of strictness about it, but it's strictness with flexibility. Oh, would it? Well, no. I was just thinking, well, maybe precepts, like compared to Christianity, uh, they talk, they use the word beliefs. And it seems like precepts are a little bit more, have a little more flexibility, perhaps, than beliefs. Like beliefs are more um, strict. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the word. <laughs> like in Christianity, you have to believe certain things. Like a friend of mine asked me if I believed in Christ. And I said, yeah, I believe in Christ. And he said, well, that doesn't, that's not enough. He goes, do you believe in the blood of Christ? And I'm like, I'm sure he had blood. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> 
<laughs> I, it, it seems like there's a lot of hoops to jump through, whereas in Buddhism, the, the hoops are a little bit more flexible and they kind of let you wiggle in and out. Well, Dean, you used the word heart when you were talking, and I, I, think, I think that's it. What's yeah. the heart of the precept? And so a person could strictly follow a precept and be breaking it because they're actually breaking the, the spirit of, what it's, of what, it's, what it's doing. So I think that's, a, uh, that's, the, that's the real word or notion is what's the heart of the precept? What, what was the original, what, what was the motivation that came, came, that came out of? And usually it's compassion and, and, and um, freedom and it's to serve that. Yeah, and actually to tie it into John's talk, maybe to see the precepts as fingers pointing at the moon. Yeah. And don't get caught up in with the finger per se. They're just guides to help us be able to respond uh, in the appropriate way. It's pointing to the moon, the source of our response. You know, I think of the precepts as an invitation hmm. um, to try it out. It's still there, they're there to be lived into. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your experience with this? And uh, that's what we learn from. Um, it's, a, it's an experiential type of thing of living into. So um, it's more like for me an invitation. I think, well, for, for me, the whole practice is an invitation. Um, hmm. To, to come on in and try it and see, see what you learn from it. Nice, I like that. I like that a lot. So can I come back? <laughs> <laughs> Only if you follow the rules. <laughs> Well, but we won't be strict. <laughs> right. <laughs> we invite you to follow our rules. <laughs> right. Oh my God. That's terrible. That is terrible. So basically you can you could still be following the way, but not always be following the precepts perfectly having an awareness that you might be deviating from the precepts is part of the way, isn't it? Yeah. I, 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 no, go ahead, John. This is no, no, I was, I, no, I was just going to say it's, it's um, I, I was just going to say, I, I can't say, I, I can't see how if what's called for is going a certain way that seems to violate the precepts that it violates. You can't violate the precepts, I don't think, if you're follow, if if you're following the way. Not not if your motivation is saying not in reality. I mean, can you theoretically do that? I you know, we all tell white lies periodically. Those would be against the precepts. I'm what sure. In, in, I'm sorry, did you not hear? Can you repeat that last sentence? Oh, I said, we all tell white lies sometimes, or what, what people call white lies, they're lies, <laughs> regardless of what color they are. But there are certainly times where telling those lies may be the kindest thing you can do. Oh. I can give you a good example, actually. 
my my wife was working uh, was a psych nurse originally, and she was working on a psych floor. And they had a little old woman, and at that time she was she was demented. And at that time, the idea was if someone had dementia, you wanted to re uh, you wanted to bring them back to any reality. And this woman kept asking for her son. And what would happen is they would remind her that he had died and she would burst out in tears all over again. Mm. Finally, the, not finally, within, within a day or two, the treatment plan read that if she asked about her son, that, that the staff was to say to her, we haven't seen him. If we see him, we'll tell him you're looking for him. And she was fine with that. Was that a lie? Yeah. Was it kind? Yes, far more kind. So did it violate the precepts? From my standpoint, no. No, because compassion trumps rules. In, in most of the, most of the versions of the precepts I've seen, and, and, inclu- and including the Ten Commandments, which says, "Thou shalt not bear false witness against the neighbor, thy neighbor," and and the precepts generally that I, at least the, ver- the interpretations I've heard, talk about refraining from harmful speech. They don't really say, "Don't lie," and and even and again, even the Ten Commandments doesn't say, "Thou shalt not lie." It says, "Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor." Which basically means don't harm your neighbor with <coughs> with, with 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 words or or you know with deception. So I, I anyway I just anyway I don't know why I felt the need to say that. But. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I, I think you're right on, Joe, and that is in the same way that we as Buddhists interpret things differently. Uh, various Christians interpret the Ten Commandments or, or any of the scriptures differently. I mean, there, there is, um, I guess that's all I really need to say about that, but there's, there's a tremendous difference in the way. I mean, all, all you have to do is look at the difference between fundamentalists and um, true, this is a bad word right now, but true evangelicals, they they look at things in very different ways. The the same things, and they interpret scripture in very different ways. I often support many students that I counsel who have some adult alligators in their life who they um, don't tell the whole truth to, and mm-hmm. I, often, I often support them and say, you know, you're you're, you're right. <laughs> you're, do not do not um, tell tell the full truth to that person. And that that's they it'd be crazy to give them any other advice. Right, right, right. I totally understand that. So Mark, were you thinking of robbing a bank and but you had a good motivation or <laughs> um, no, I was just thinking about how just being aware, I think the longer I practice, um, the more you know I've, I come become aware of the precepts. And even if I'm not meeting precepts, just having the awareness is still, I, I like um, what Chuck had said about that they're an invitation to come back to, to, 
have the awareness that, okay, I could be practicing this precept or that precept or, you know, I mean, it's really tempting to practice ill will, wishing ill will towards others. <laughs> you know, it's like on the tip of my tongue a lot. But whether I stay, you know, it's like practicing, okay, I'm practicing the way because I'm aware, like, oop, that almost came out. But, you know, um, anyhow, I'm not a saint. I'm not going to, I'm not going to rob a bank. <laughs> so, anyhow. I, I'm so disappointed to know you're not a saint, Mark. <laughs> I don't know if he can continue to belong to Crooked River. <laughs> you could, Mark, you could be a Robin Hood, you know, <laughs> steal from the wealthy and give to the poor. Yeah, there you go. It's a lot of people that need it right now. Only if you help me. <laughs> Only if I help you. <laughs> Back to Zazen. <laughs> 